0: Family Law Webinar brought to you by O'Neill Wasaki. Uh, I'm Michelle O'Neill, Senior Shareholder at O'Neill Wasaki, and I am joined by Carrie Bertrand and Nick Rodriguez, who are both associates at our firm. This uh, this section is going to talk about recent case law developments in same-sex issues, and uh, we're going to, we've got about 10 or 11 cases we're going to cover, so hopefully we can scooch through those pretty quickly and, uh, And then uh, be done within our little 30-minute window this section is uh, approved for 30 minutes of CLE credit in Texas and uh, the whole thing is approved for two hours of CLE credit with a half an hour of ethics so if you uh, are out there and want the CLE credit go pay the registration fee to get the credit and send us your bar number and comment in the comments so we can get you the credit through the bar all right starting out I want to. Whenever I started thinking about what, where do you start, right? Where do you start in talking about um, LGBT rights and same sex rights, and 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 obviously we're in Texas, so we want to kind of have a Texas uh, <clears throat> perspective on those. And to me, we start with Baker v. Nelson because that's the case that Obergefell technically um, overruled. So. So starting with Baker v. Nelson, that was a case in the 70s. In 1970, two uh, gentlemen from the University of Minnesota, they were gay activists at the University of Minnesota, they decided one day uh, to go down and apply for a marriage license. They wanted to get married, and the clerk in the court in Minneapolis denied them the right to get a marriage license on the sole ground that they were of the same sex. So the couple then filed suit in the district court there in Minneapolis to force the district clerk to give them a license. Um, And they, they had to contend, obviously, that they were individually harmed by the laws that were prohibiting them from getting the marriage license, which they did. And when they got to the trial court, the trial court dismissed their claims. And the trial court ordered the clerk not to issue the license. So they appealed that to the Minnesota Supreme Court. And uh, keep in mind this was in the early 70s, and one of the things that I found very interesting uh, was that in the Minnesota Supreme Court, whenever they were presenting argument, uh, when the lawyer representing these two guys got up to present argument, one of the justices actually physically turned his chair around, turned his back to the lawyer presenting the case on behalf of the gay guys, and did not ask a single question during the argument of the lawyer. And so, to me, that was kind of like the ultimate sign of disrespect, right, that he did that. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen a judge in all of my years of practice do something quite as disrespectful as that was. So the uh, Minnesota Supreme Court issued its opinion in 1971 and affirmed the trial court's dismissal of the case in in order not to issue the license. So the couple um, uh, appealed that to the United States Supreme Court. And it's interesting, this is the only case that I've seen, I'm sure there's others, but the only one that I've seen where the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert on the case, but it was done in such a way where the denial of cert is actually binding authority. It's actually an approval of the Minnesota Supreme Court's decision making the Baker v. Nelson case binding authority as it applies across the land and uh, actually up until the Obergefell case. So um, so the Supreme Court's denial of cert basically adopted the Minnesota Supreme Court's ruling that the statutes prohibited marriage between persons of the same sex and that it did not offend due process. Uh, I, I actually, the, here, let me read this to you. The restriction the court reasoned did not offend the due process clause because procreation and child rearing are central to the constitutional protections given to marriage. So back hmm. in the 70s, that was the <laughs> rationalization that was given for denial of same-sex marriage. Now coming forward, I, I found, I, because I, and I know Carrie, <laughs> and many of you out there are, are fans of, of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I found a quote by Justice Ginsburg in her, of her view of the Baker case. Uh-oh. So during the 2013 oral argument in Hollingsworth versus Perry, which is the case out of California about section 8 in California. Justice Ginsburg summarized her view of the Baker case. She said, "Quote, the Supreme Court hadn't even decided that gender-based classifications get any kind of heightened security and, or heightened scrutiny and the same sex intimate conduct was considered criminal in many states in 1971, so I don't think we can extract much in Baker v. Nelson." <laughs> so I love that quote from Justice Ginsburg. Um, So, Baker v. Nelson, to me, is kind of the starting point. I mean, we could talk about Lawrence v. Texas or some of the other statutes that talk about the criminality of same-sex activities, but for me, Baker v. Nelson is kind of the starting point because you start, obviously, where do you start, everybody? Beginning. You you always (laughs) start at the very beginning. So, for me, Baker v. Nelson was the very beginning of the denial of the right to marry to a same-sex couple. So then the next thing to me that's the, um, one of the important things on the timeline is the passage of the Defense of Marriage Act. So, Nick, talk briefly about the Defense of Marriage Act and how that, how that plays into our discussion.
1: Okay. Well, uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, as I think we mentioned in the first segment, let me get close to the mic, um, was initially introduced in 1996 under the Bill Clinton administration, and so he signed that into law. Um, so, so
0: I just want to underscore this just for a second. Ironic. Bill Clinton was a
1: Democrat. <laughs> Correct.
0: And the House and Senate passed this, this federal legislation by such a large portion, more margin that it would have been not vetoable. And in fact, he did not even try to veto it. Bill Clinton, the hero of many Democrats, signed it into law.
1: Correct. All right, continue, (laughs)
0: continue, (laughs) Nick. I just wanted to draw a little underscore under that.
1: (laughs) So, as Michelle mentioned, it had an overwhelming (laughs) approval and it was not vetoable. So, we signed into law in 1996. Um, And so, for our purposes, at least in the marriage context, um, Section Three is what was applicable to us under DOMA. Um, So, Section Three codified the non-recognition of same-sex marriages. So, it defined, you know, marriage between one man, one woman. Um, And so how that applies to a person, you know, who same-sex marriage is that, you know, you're not entitled to all the federal benefits that flow from DOMA, which is, you know, insurance benefits, government employee benefits, tax status, tax status, um, filing joint returns. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the list goes on. So I think that, as we will find out, and probably speaking about Windsor, um, how that played a role in that case.
0: So so in 1996, the federal government passes DOMA, and then all the states started passing their own versions of the Defense of Marriage Act, including Texas, and even some cities, as we um, talk about when we get to the Pigeon case, even some cities had a version of their own Defense of Marriage Act that defined marriage as one man and one woman. Correct. All right, so then after <coughs> DOMA, then to me the next thing on the... Uh, the important timeline is the Windsor case. So Nick, tell us about the Windsor case. It was decided June 26th of 2013. It was authored by Justice Kennedy. I, yes. I find that to be in, in important in the uh, in the history lesson of the thing. And it was a 5-4 decision in 2013, which is also important. Correct. So um, talk about Windsor.
1: So let me give you a overview of the facts. So Edith Windsor and Thea Spire um, they got engaged in 1967. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, so the couple actually resided in New York, but they went to Ontario, Canada to get married. Um, and so in 1967 they had gotten engaged, so their marriage had been ongoing for five decades at this point. Um, and so New York, in 2008 uh, legalized same-sex marriage. Um, unfortunately, you know, Thea died in 77, leaving her entire estate to Edith. Um, And so when Edith sought to claim a federal tax exemption under the IRS code, um, she was unable to because DOMA, Section 3 of DOMA, as we spoke about earlier, defined a spouse as marriages between a man and a woman. Um, So that was the question before the court um, was whether the federal government is allowed to govern um, or make law on claims between same-sex spouses or define that for them.
0: Okay, and so what did the U.S. Supreme Court decide in in Windsor?
1: Well, uh, like I stated earlier, uh, there was a procedural issue, which was, did she have standing? Uh, the Supreme Court said she did. Um, the the second major issue was, you know, did the Third Amendment violate...
0: The Third Section.
1: I'm sorry, the Third Section of DOMA violate the Fifth Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the laws as applied to same-sex uh Partners uh, who are married under the laws of their state. So on the merits, the court ruled that uh, it did violate the uh, Fifth Amendment. Okay,
0: so so Windsor was the first case then that started recognizing same-sex relationships as or, or even just gay orientation as being something that's covered by the Equal Protection Clause that deserves heightened scrutiny. Yes. And uh, Windsor then, Struck down this section three that uh, limited marriage to one man, one woman, and said basically that for federal law purposes, that um, marriage between same-sex couples had to be recognized. Correct. Which then created quite a problem for a couple of years because the federal government was recognizing same-sex marriages, but most of the, many of the states were not, right? Yes. Some states had passed some marriage laws and some states had not. Right, and so there was a, a lot of, of disharmony in the, uh, in the application of Windsor.
1: Absolutely, and I think you'll see that in the following case, might be the Pigeon case that you're gonna...
0: Uh, well, I was gonna talk uh, about Obergefell next. Okay, we're yeah. Obergefell. Yeah. Let's one. talk about Obergefell, then we'll, okay. we'll get to Pigeon in a minute. Um, so Obergefell <coughs> was decided June 26th of 2015, the two years to the day after Windsor. It also was a 5-4 decision. It also was authored by Justice Kennedy, which I find interesting.
2: Similar dissent authors as well.
0: Yeah, and obviously similar dissent (laughs) authors. So Obergefell is actually a conglomeration of cases. It wasn't just one guy who sued the government. It was actually several cases that had been put together. I think six, is that right? Six cases that were kind of put together from Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Yes. And uh, they all came together. Um, I, it, it was interesting when, if you were around whenever the arguments were happening during Obergefell because I watched them live, like all the different lawyers and kind of everybody kind of having their little opportunity. Um, <clears throat> and so they, they put all these cases together because there were some splits in the, court, in the, in the courts of appeals um, as to how the Windsor rulings were being applied. And so what was the holding in Obergefell?
1: So, the whole thing in Obergefell was that same-sex couples did have a fundamental right to marry. Um, And, you know, Justice Kennedy cited Loving v. Virginia as a basis for that. And, you know, he wrote beautifully and talked about, you know, the traditions and principles of marriage and how they apply both equally to... Aren't just
0: for procreation, like they said in Baker v. Nelson.
1: And I actually wrote this down because I thought it was worth, you know, jotting down. So, Justice Kennedy wrote um, that the four traditional principles behind the right to marry include and they apply equally to both heterosexual couples and same-sex couples are the right to choose whether who, whether or with whom to marry is inherent and it's an individual autonomy. Um, the right protects the intimate relationship between two people. That the right protects children, families by giving legal protection to home building and child rearing and then that marriage is a keystone of social order and a foundation to the family unit. And I thought that was great that he outlined you know how they applied to you know both same-sex couples and heterosexual couples and I thought it was worth mentioning.
0: Yeah so. I like that. I like that. Okay so Obergefell found um, the US Supreme Court found that there was a fundamental right to marry guaranteed to same-sex couples by the due process clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment um, and it required that all 50 states including the District of Columbia and and any other insular areas, uh, perform and recognize the marriages of same-sex couples if they were performed in other states that allowed for those. And that was real important because I think after Windsor, you know, Texas, for example, did not allow gay marriage and was not recognizing marriages that were lawfully performed in other states and actually the the Defense of Marriage Act in one of the other sections says that states don't have to give comedy to those marriages performed in other states and to other states laws. So the Obergefell decision says basically yes you do, you have to recognize those marriages lawfully performed in other jurisdictions and you have to allow marriages to happen in your own jurisdiction. So that pretty much changed the uh, state of same-sex marriage across the country. Um, And then, you know, we've proceeded since 2015 with basically interpreting and figuring out what exactly the parameters of Obergefell are, how broad are they, how narrow are they, and as you were kind of talking about, the constellation of benefits that come with um, marriage and where do those things fall within the Obergefell opinion so let's talk um, the next one on my list that of importance Carrie not necessarily we're not doing this in a timeline analysis <laughs> but the next one in importance then that I had on my list was the Pavan case
2: um, so Carrie do you want to talk about Pavan I've been calling it Pavan but Pavan? yes I can talk I don't about know. Pavan I don't either and I've heard it said 15 different ways we'll
0: have to call him and ask <clears>
2: him <throat> right so yes this this case is said to be by judge denise garcia of the 303rd in dallas uh to do what uh obergefell did for marriage this <clears throat> case did for parentage
0: and so P- pavan or pavan is a u.s supreme court case correct also. yes
2: and so what was the what was the situation in it So you had two married couples, same-sex married couples. Uh, Both uh, were female couples. One was married in Iowa. The other was married in New Hampshire. Uh, They both moved at some point to Arkansas. They conceived with an anonymous donor, and, you know, one of them gave birth to the child. Um, They all applied for birth certificates and put all their names in all the spaces, and when they went to pick up the birth certificate, only the biological mother was on the birth certificate. So um, they, they sued, and basically the Supreme Court said that not a- allowing the consolation of benefits under marriage to apply to this particular Right, as far as being listed on your child's birth certificate was unconstitutional, because it was blocking them from having access to enrolling their children in school and anything else that you would need to have a birth certificate for, like a pediatrician, whoever needs this birth certificate, you're, you're married to this person, but you can't be on the birth certificate as this child's parent. So it, it uh, like Michelle mentioned, that constellation of benefits um, that the state had linked to marriage under a fell could now be extended as a parentage right as well. So, yeah, so so
0: Pavan or Pavan <coughs> held that a state law that precludes same-sex couples from having both spouses' name on a birth certificate violates due process and equal protection under Obergefell. So the Pavan or Pavan case extended Obergefell into this new territory and extended that due process and equal protection argument. And so that was, I think, 2017. Yes. So as of 2017, then, all of the bureau of vital statistics across the state had to then change their forms instead of saying mother and father to say parent one parent two or something like that all right so then um moving to the next one that i have on the list the de leon versus perry case so this case is interesting because it's not a u.s supreme court case it's actually a court, uh, uh, an intermediate court uh, in Texas, a federal court in Texas, but it was it was the first case that really um, talked about the retroactivity question. And so, with Obergefell, the question arose, and we did talk about it in one of the earlier sections. But I'll give a brief overview here. So, in Obergefell, because it came out in 2015, it. Um, the question of its applicability to marriages prior to 2015 was raised and most of the constitutional scholars believe that whenever a law is struck down as being unconstitutional that it is void ab initio which means in non-lawyer talk that it is as if the law never existed so there's not really a retroactivity question because the law never existed but a lot of courts and a lot of judges have raised this issue of is obergefell retroactive to marriages that were performed before that date so in daily on it is dealing with um the same-sex couples and whether the marriage before um obergefell was um was um valid and in daily on it decided that in fact the marriage was valid um and uh and that it was recognized, and so that, so that's the trial court opinion in the federal district court, and then that opinion was appealed to the Fifth Circuit, but then Obergefell came out, and so the Fifth Circuit dismissed it and upheld the trial court's finding that, um, that it was a valid marriage, even though it was prior to the date of Obergefell. So then let's move on to the Pigeon case, as Nick referenced earlier. So Pigeon is the next one on my list. And uh, Pigeon is a very interesting case. Uh, Pigeon is a case that is out of the Supreme Court of Texas. Um, Pigeon deals with this constellation of benefits question and the applicability of Windsor and Obergefell to the constellation of benefits that comes with marriage. So in 2013, before Obergefell, the Houston mayor decided that the city was going to provide employment benefits to spouses in same-sex marriages, the same as, in, as spouses in heterosexual marriages. Um, these two conservative activists filed suit against the city, arguing that the expenditures violated the city's version of the Defense of Marriage Act, and, uh, and argued that the city could not expend public funds on quote-unquote illegal activities. So um, so it went to the trial court, and at the time in Houston, the trial judge was a Republican. As an interesting side note, it was filed in family court, even though it wasn't a family court case. And, and I've tried to research um, how that happened. Apparently in Houston, they don't have uh, uh, filings like we do in other counties, so I guess maybe they got to pick the court they filed in. Um, anyway, for one reason or another, they filed this case in the family district court, where a Republican judge was sitting. And that Republican judge um, found that um, it denied the the city's plea to the jurisdiction. So the city filed a plea to the jurisdiction, saying that these two conservative activists didn't have standing to uh, to hear to file the suit and it granted the conservative activists uh, in request for an injunction to prohibit the city from continuing to provide these benefits. So whenever the trial court denied the plea to the jurisdiction, that's actually an issue that is appealable by interlocutory appeal. So the city appealed to the Court of Appeals and while that appeal was pending, the US Supreme Court came out with the Obergefell decision which invalidated the Defense of Marriage Acts across the country. So there was a lot of argument to the Court of Appeals about the applicability of Obergefell and um, how it believed the plaintiffs, um, the the conservative plaintiffs believed that Obergefell only applied to the recognition of marriages but not to the constellation of benefits. So the Court of Appeals held that the injunction against uh, the city for prohibiting them from providing these benefits was illegal as of Obergefell, and then remanded the case back to the trial court to determine how Obergefell applied to the rest of the case for any actions that occurred prior to the Obergefell opinion. So that went up to the the Texas Supreme Court, and in 2017, the Texas Supreme Court issued an opinion, and, you know, there was a lot of press about the Pigeon opinion being anti-gay rights. And I've now, I've read the Pigeon opinion, And I can understand how you might view it that way, but it actually was an opinion that was very um, specific as to the points in front of it. It was not, there was some language in the opinion where some of the justices kind of went outside and did some opining, Mm -hmm. but the decision in Pigeon was actually very, very narrow. So the the Texas Supreme Court actually held that um, the, Court of Appeals ruling to um, to reverse the injunction should be vacated in light of the change of the law. I, I'm sorry, I've said that backwards. They actually agreed that the injunction should be vacated in light of the change of the law, and they um, and they sent it back to the trial court basically on and said that it's all premature. So they sent it back to the trial court and said we're not we don't think you should have an injunction. But we don't necessarily agree with the breadth of the Court of Appeals opinion. So they reversed the Court of Appeals opinion as to this determination of the applicability of Obergefell to the constellation of benefits and sent it back to the trial court for the trial court to hold further hearings on it. So what that did was it put back into the trial court the question of standing, the question of the date of Obergefell and this what happened before Obergefell, what happened after, and the question of this injunction. Interestingly, just recently, um, in fact, in the last, what, month, two months, Carrie? Month, I guess? Um, It was in January, so it's been two months. Mm -hmm. Um, So interestingly, that went back to the trial court in Harris County, but we've since had a change of politics in Harris Mm -hmm. County. So now there is a... um, a Democrat sitting on the bench at this in this court in Harris County. She undertook um, to hear summary judgment motions from both sides. So when both sides file final summary judgment motions, that basically means that the court can make the decision based on the law and can rule on the summary judgments and decide the whole case. So the judge in, uh, in the Pigeon case, the trial judge, has now granted summary judgment. Finding that the conservative activist did not have standing to sue, and uh, that judge has sent that case, um, has dismissed that case, and therefore it's left it to the um, to the plaintiffs to appeal it and go back up on it. Mm-hmm. So um, he's telling me that we're almost out of time. <laughs> We've talked. In, we wanted to talk about the AE case, which Carrie talked about earlier in one of the presentations. We wanted to also talk about the PS case, which Nick talked about earlier in one of the presentations. So kind of moving forward, um, we talked just briefly about the HS case, but I wanted to give you specifically that case name because I think when we talked about it before, I didn't say the case name. So in June of 2018, just not even a year ago, the Texas Supreme Court delivered a 5-4 opinion in the case of NRA H-S, and we will put the site in the comments whenever it's time. Um, and that case is the one that talks about the um, actual care control and possession of a non-parent. So in that case, the uh, Texas Supreme Court defined control for the purposes of that standing statute that we talked about earlier, and they said if the non-parent operated in a parent-like role for at least six months as required by the statute by The examples they gave, sharing a principal residence with the child, supporting the child's regular physical and psychological needs, and showing guidance, governance, and direction similar to that characteristically exerted on an everyday basis by a parent with their offspring, then that would be control sufficient to satisfy the standing statute to allow somebody who is not legally a parent to actually sue for conservatorship uh, of a child they said the statute does not require the non-parent to have ultimate legal authority to control the child nor does it require the parent to have wholly ceded or relinquished their own parent rights or responsibilities so it really kind of gave a much more broad interpretation of that care control and Mm -hmm. possession statute than what had been um, put in place by some of the courts of appeals Um, So then let's just touch real briefly on the McReynolds case. That's a case out of the Dallas Court of Appeals on the name change and gender change. So that's one of the issues that we're seeing more common in some of the courts um, where people are asking for a gender change um, in the law. And uh, so this Dallas case, McReynolds, and then there's another one um, that I'll put the site in the comments. Um, There's two cases, actually, but one out of Dallas called McReynolds, and then there's one out of Houston. And so what they've actually held on gender changes is that, at least in the Houston Court and the Dallas Court of Appeals districts, that there's no statutory provision in the law for a gender change. So with a name change, there's actually a statute in our family code here that actually talks about how to procedurally go about a name change. But with a gender change there's no statute that actually tells us in the law how to go about doing that so the dallas court of appeals has basically taken the the obvious road and said because there's no statute that says it we don't think we can do it and so you can't do a gender change there are other courts especially district courts in texas that are taking a much different viewpoint and actually allowing gender changes This is an area of the law, if you have a client come in and ask you about doing a gender change, you really need to consider where you're at and what the status is of the courts, the district courts, and the courts of appeals that you're practicing in front of, because it's very possible that you could be in a district that is not allowing those, and you really need to send that client to a a lawyer in one of the places, in one of the district courts that is allowing them. Interestingly, with a gender change, there's no real um, a rule about where a person would have to file them. If they're a Texas resident, they could pretty much file that in any court in the state of Texas, even if it's in an area that they don't live in. So, um, you know, so that's a place where, where you file is very, very, very important. Um, <clears throat> so then the last case I want to talk about is that Maruf versus Azar case, and this was actually a, a trial court case still is a trial court case, I think, and uh, has not gone up on appeal, but it is, I think, going to be something that could be instructive. So um, that case, Carrie, jump in if you want to talk about this one, but that case involved a denial of adoption.
2: Correct. Uh, By a federally funded adoption agency, uh, Catholic Charities of Fort Worth. Uh, denied uh, Miss Maroof and Miss Esplin, who were both attorneys, both professors, I believe one's a professor at the law school in, at Texas A&M, and the other one's a professor at Texas A&M University, um, the ability to adopt um, from Catholic charities. This was a couple, they're very well-educated, obviously. Um, they knew they were aware of 300,000 homeless refugees in this area. They wanted to... Uh, adopt a refugee child and they were told that because their family did not mirror the holy family they were going to be uh disqualified so lambda legal uh has filed suit on behalf of the couple i did try to look up the status online today um it hadn't been updated on lambda's site that i could tell but um i I, so this is a case that's basically where
0: their catholic charities decided on on religious grounds right That they didn't want to serve this couple. Correct. And so the couple is suing Catholic Charities saying basically because you accept federal funding, you're bound by the um, Windsor Obergefell line of cases. And you cannot deny me um, an adoption um, based on your religious beliefs because you accept federal funding. So I would imagine the Hobby Lobby case is gonna be important to this question because of the religious rights questions. Mm-hmm. Probably the Masterpiece Cake yes. uh, case is gonna be important uh, to the decision in this case as well because it was another religious rights. And you know, so what we're, we're dealing with in kind of one of the issues that's circulating in, in LGBT rights right now is this kind of tug and pull of an individual's own beliefs and the right that that individual has to believe or not believe in lgbt rights versus the obergefell windsor heightened um, protections that are given to um, sexual orientation uh that allow them to exist in the world and have rights under the laws just like everybody else so that tug and pull of the individual beliefs versus the the um uh rights of of a person to be who they are um, is, is where kind of a lot of litigation is happening right now with the Hobby Lobby case and the mm-hmm. Masterpiece Cake case, and then this case that may be coming up
2: along behind it. Yeah. And all you, right. You brought up an interesting point. Sorry, no, no of time. Ahead. No, it's all good. But I think part of the problem is the level of scrutiny. We've gone above rational yeah. basis, but we're still below strict scrutiny. You know, we don't have a protected class there, so,
0: and I think that actually is exactly where you know where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for people that aren't constitutional scholars, when you're when you have the heightened scrutiny, where you're in that strict scrutiny analysis, then that's like the the race issue is a strict right. scrutiny, gender is a strict scrutiny, and so so even private individuals do not have the ability to. Um, to discriminate against somebody who is in one of those heightened classes that's subject to the strict scrutiny, where um, Obergefell and Windsor uh, raised the equal protection status of same-sex couples to the heightened scrutiny, but it's not to the level of strict scrutiny yet. So we're still kind of in that gray area of Mm -hmm. a little bit lesser than gender or race, but given the elevated status so that there's some protections. Agreed. All right so that concludes our (laughs) webinar on lgbt texas family law for this round i appreciate everybody being here like i said if you want cle credit we are approved for two hours of texas bar cle credit if you register in the link and pay the twenty dollar registration fee send me your bar number and we will get you the credit with the state bar we'll um, put you on the list whenever i submit it to get that credit Um, Otherwise, the course is free for everybody who's been watching. I hope you've enjoyed it. Give us feedback. We love comments. We love feedback. If there's some area of LGBT law, uh, family law, that you'd like for us to talk about, maybe we'll do another one. So give us your feedback. We appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Mind that this is a webinar that's aimed at attorneys. This is for continuing legal education. If you're out there watching this, this webinar and you're not an attorney, we welcome you to watch it. But remember that we are not giving you any specific legal advice. We cannot comment on any specific case or situation without knowing all the facts. So if you need legal advice, this webinar is not a substitute for legal advice. Please, please seek the advice of a lawyer as to your specific situation and get specific advice to that because if you rely on just what we're talking about here we're being general we're talking about general legal principles that may not actually apply to your situation this is for continuing legal education only and we cannot create an attorney client relationship just through the video camera okay thanks